0: So, today's our first opportunity for what we call Taisho, Dharma Talk, and discussion, which is something we've done over many, many years now. And it's one of the great, great gifts, I think, of having a Sangha practice, that we can come together and inquire together and wake up together, discover what this strange, mysterious life and life of the Dharma actually is. And today I want to do this in the spirit of this being our first day of practice back together, and I want to wend our way through an old koan case from 6th century, actually a little bit later, China, and arrive at the great vows for all, these great vows that we all recite at the end of every single gathering that we have together. What on earth are we vowing to do? When you recite these vows, and even if these vows are unfamiliar to you, when you see them, when you read them today, you'll notice just how vast and scandalously impossible they are. So let's go there. Let's go and meet these vows. And I want to do this first by taking up this case from the Record of Empty Hall. I've always thought this is a great name, the Record of Empty Hall. Here we are sitting in a great empty hall, living the Record of Empty Hall, perhaps even spinning the Record of Empty Hall. And this case is case 60 from the collection. If you know anything about Cohen collections, you know they often come in groups of 100, and this is no exception, the Record of Empty Hall. It's not perhaps as um, well known as the Blue Cliff Record, you may have heard of, or the Book of Serenity, or even the Wu Men Quan. These are great texts in our tradition, in our lineage. But this is no less a wonderful text of very, very probing, challenging, enlightening encounters between Monk and monk, or monk and master, or master and master. After a while, who can tell who from who? And this case is no exception. It's case 60 from the record of Empty Hall, and it's called Zhitang's More. Jitang's More. And here it is. One day, the Venerable Jitang responded to a general request to teach, and he said, strive. But for what? At that time, a monk came forward and held his hands on the earth. Shitang Tang said, what are you doing? And the monk said, we save each other. Shi Tang said, "Oh, a great teacher for this assembly. And yet there is still more. And with that, the monk shook out his sleeves and left. As a final comment after the monk had left, Xu Tang said, Ooh, the worms inside the lion eat lion meat. (laughs) So what on earth is going on here? Let's take a slow walk through this very interesting encounter between Xu Tang and this monk who steps forward. So let's start with Zhitang. One of the beautiful things about koan cases is we get to meet these teachers personally, one after the other, and we grow to like them very much. They really do come alive. The more time we spend with them, the more time we actually take their teachings to heart, the more we recognise ourselves in them, the more we recognise that we are them. At the deepest level, we are them, these old teachers. So Tang was a teacher in the so-called classical period of Zen. He was a student of Matsu, great master Ma, a thundering presence in our history. And he lived from 735 to 814. So that's the 8th to the 9th century in China. And for those who know a little bit of their Zen history, he received Dharma transmission alongside Bai Zhang, another truly important figure. And both Bai Zhang and Zhitang were instrumental in allowing the Dharma to grow in China, to spread in China, to, to really... Find its own voice and meaning and purpose and vigour in China. So, in this case we discover that Zhi Tang is being hounded by his students to say something. <laughs> to teach. It happens to teach us. Please, teach us. Do something. Bring the Dharma alive for us it's a beautiful thing that this is a call from the Sangha. It's not something that Tang has imposed on anybody. He hasn't sort of gone parading up to the front of the assembly and started just wagging his finger and saying whatever comes to his mind. There's something sincere about this. It's something perhaps that goes beyond just teach us, this urgency that perhaps you can feel in these words or this fact that he's been asked to teach. There's something maybe deeper like help us, help us. We want your help. And I say this because I'm aware that Tang was teaching at a very tumultuous time in the history of China. Some of you may know about the very infamous An Lushan Rebellion. Well, it raged from 755 to 763 in China. And this was an eight-year-long war that convulsed the entire country. Millions of people died. Millions of people died. Families and whole institutions were uprooted and forced to take to the road. And this is recorded most beautifully by Du Fu, who's one of the, he's almost like a Shakespearean character of ancient China, a chronicler of so much of Chinese life and so much of the suffering that the Chinese people experienced at this time. His poems are first hand accounts of the experience that so many had. So here's a poem of his, just to set the tone of where this call to teach has been coming from. It's called The Ballad of Pinyar Road by Fu. He says this. I remember when we first fled the rebels, hurrying north over dangerous trails. Night deepened on the Pinyar Road, the whole family trudging endlessly begging without shame from the people we met. Not a single traveller came the other way. My little girl bit me in hunger. And fearful that wolves or tigers would hear her cries, I hugged her to my chest, muffling her mouth. But still she struggled free and just cried more. Ten days we went holding hands, half in rain and thunder, through mud and slime. We pulled each other on, no escaping the rain. We're eating wild berries, sheltering under trees, wading through water, searching the horizon for a wisp of smoke that might lead us to a safe shelter. With so much of this kind of violence and torn, torn life all around them. No wonder these monks may have been looking for a wisp of smoke from old Jitang, some wisp of smoke to lead them to a safe shelter. And it's impossible not to feel that I think ourselves in 2024 as we sit here with so much violence in our world all around us we know the wars in gaza we know ukraine we know shooting after shooting in the united states of america we know that this goes on and on and on and on and if you're half awake it pierces you it hurts it uproots you in perhaps the very same way that these monks and even old Tang himself is uprooted by the suffering of the world in which he sits and in which we sit. It's worth noting too that, as I said before, this was the classical period of Zen that we're talking about a kind of golden age of Zen. Mm -hmm. And don't miss that this golden age of Zen is happening at a time where there is so much upheaval. It's the very upheaval that clarified what this practice is all about. Perhaps it stripped away all of the, the dressings and ornament and left us with a bare bones, direct, vital, Kind of practice vital to life, vital to living well together. Perhaps you might even say that Zen was an early kind of deep adaptation to the crisis of this world. So Zhu Tang accepts this offer to teach. So, what does he do? He perhaps unceremoniously even, sort of, you know, almost pushed onto the stage, looks around the room at everybody and says, strive, but for what? What an interesting move to make. Strive, but for what, he says. Perhaps there's a kind of anguish in this or something forlorn or perhaps fatigue. fatigue. Is there a tense or a sense of hopelessness even? What's Shi Tang doing here when he offers strive? But for what? Perhaps he's caught the kind of zeitgeist of the moment. Perhaps he's caught the very spirit of this help that comes from the monk and he's handing it back to them. Perhaps he's giving the monks their own tongue back. Strive, but for what? What are we practising for? What is our practice? Why do we sit here? Why do we come on a Sunday morning? What are we striving for? What are we doing? What's this all about? Isn't this the most central question to a practice? Isn't the most central question to a life, why are we here? What are we doing? What's this for? Why do we suffer? Well, Jitang offers this question back but with a hook. There is a sharp hook in this question of Jitang's. I wonder if you can hear it. Perhaps you can hear it in this word, strive, strive. There can be so much striving in our life. We can whip ourselves into a kind of frenzy of aspiration, a desperate panic, anxious kind of striving for improvement, striving for more. Remember this case of Zhitang's is called Zhitang's more. What is this more that we're after? What is it that we're striving for? And perhaps what if we dropped this striving? What would happen if we stopped striving for more? And even stopped thinking that there was anything less. And just accepted what this is. Where we are. Who we are. Without more. Without less. Without striving. But without denying that this world is flowing on and on and on. Miraculously appearing breath by breath by breath. In Zazen, we take this very much to heart. On the cushion, we actually allow ourselves to not strive, to let go, to simply be, which turns out to be a very curious, interesting, enlarging, and calming. Place to be. There's a lovely version of one of our sutras called the Shodoka by Bob O'Hearn where he says, for years I tried to figure it out with efforts mounted against the wind. Finally I gave up the struggle. Now the breeze blows through me. It's very tempting to try and build a kind of armour against the world. To stop the wind, even touching us. To protect ourselves from the winds of change, from the winds of war, from the winds of pain. But when we let go, when we give up the struggle and relax, let go of this striving, then the wind blows through us. The breeze can blow through us. I mentioned before that the difficulty of living in such a violent world pierces us. And it does. It hurts. And yet it pierces us all the way through. It keeps on piercing us all the way through. And when we're pierced all the way through, we are all threaded through by this very interesting hook, by this very interesting needle that leaves not a single one of us out. We become one being. All beings, one body, it's sometimes expressed as. And perhaps this is a clue as to what happens next in this very interesting case. Remember... At that moment, after Zhitang has said, Strive, but for what? A monk steps forward from the assembly and places both his hands on the earth. Zhitang is clearly moved, intrigued. He says, what are you doing? I would suggest that Zhitang is inwardly smiling here, saying, ah, you're showing me very clearly how this has touched you. Now give me some words. And Zen we love to prioritise, show me, show, don't tell me, show me, show me, show me. <coughs> In this case the monk's already shown, shown, shown. So she same, says, tell me, offer some words to what you're doing here. And the monk says, we save each other. We save each other. In the Chinese, this is literally translated as mutually save, mutually save. And I think both of these expressions, we save each other, mutually save, these are beautiful expressions of the reality of Dharma, of the reality of practice. We save each other, we mutually save, mutually save. And this is brought home most vividly, I think, by the fact that we do gather as a sangha. We ask, why do we come here on a Sunday morning? Perhaps we have a very deep intimation that after all we do save each other, not some single isolated, alienated self. Perhaps it's very obvious by now that this isolated, alienated self is saved by the Sangha, by saved by a realization of each other. To be caught in that lonely corner is to suffer a kind of shriveled life, a barren, fearful, and very lonely existence. In Sangha, It's impossible to be lonely. And when we walk the experience of Sangha into everything that we do in the world, what happens to the loneliness then? This feels increasingly urgent to me right now because we're so aware, I'm sure any of us here, about the epidemics of loneliness, of social fragmentation, of isolation, of people feeling Almost digitally cut off from each other into tiny pixels of existence. This is desperately sad. Desperately sad. It's a kind of uprooting of the 21st century that makes no sense in the light of the Dharma, that makes no sense at the heart of any genuine practice. Because as this monk has so clearly demonstrated and spoken, we save each other. If we can touch this earth, if we can be earthed, then we do mutually save. Mutually save. And it's no accident, I think, that this monk is touching the earth. Again, We can talk about the wars that human beings conduct against one another. But think of the war we're conducting against the earth. This belligerent, extractive, unthinking, unquestioning war against the many beings. The many beings which we choose, apparently, to ignore with such casualness. Where is the Save Each Other there? And of course, there's something in the monk touching the earth like this, both hands in the ground, that has an echo of Shakyamuni beneath the body tree, calling the earth to witness by himself touching the earth. And it's said that at just that moment where the earth is called to witness, who's witnessing who? Is it Shakyamuni witnessing the earth? Is it the earth? Witnessing Shakyamuni. What is this witness? What is it that sees? What is this great eye treasury? It's sometimes called in Zen the great treasury of practice. What is it that truly sees? That's what we're here to touch. That's what we're here to realize. And we do whenever our feet or our hands or our words, or our actions, or our heart, do touch the ground. Do touch the earth. There's something so beautiful about this almost animal. It's almost like somebody returning to their mammal state, their immediate mammal-animal state, touching the earth with not just both hands, but probably knees and feet. The whole body a whole bodied none other than the earth. Beautiful practice. And, after all, exactly what we do when we sit in Zazen on this cushion. Where is the line between your body and the earth as you sit right now? Can you find it? So... Tang, I think, is again moved. But he's not going to let this monk go. He may be resonating, I think, very deeply with what this monk has had to offer, but he actually asks another question. He says, hmm, I see you are a teacher for this great assembly. High praise. High praise in a moment such as this. I see you are a teacher demonstrating exactly what the Dharma is for this great assembly. And yet there is still more, he says. Again, we're drawn back to this question of more. What more could there possibly be? What more is Shi Tang daring this monk to see or to bring forward? And it's at that point that the monk stands up, flourishes his sleeves, and walks out. Another wonderful presentation of the Dharma. This shaking of the sleeves in China was often a way of just shaking free of any complication. Almost like wiping the slate clean. I think of my dog after we've gone for a swim down in Forest Creek and I tell her that it's time to go and she gives me one of those kelpy, tilted, mournful looks. (laughs) Like, you've got to be joking. It can't be time to go. And I say, no, come on, it's time to go. And she will just shake on the bank of that waterhole. And when she shakes on the bank of that waterhole, the whole world is shaking. And all of that water is just spraying right through all of the trees and the bank and the water and the sticks. And all the merry, oh, I said merry beings, but it's almost like merry beings. All the many beings are there with her. It's like one of those moments in the old sutras where jewels and flowers and things seem to fall from the heavens and <laughs> to decorate the earth. It's like that when my dog shakes with such completeness and abandon. Well, the monk's like this. And he steps out. And Shi Tang again can only sigh in his way at that point. And say, so the worms inside the lion eat lion meat. <laughs> Now apparently this was a colloquial expression at the time and I've tried to convince my 16-year-old daughter that it could take on with her classmates if she wanted to (laughs) (laughs) try it out but she told me she doesn't quite vibe with it (laughs) (laughs) as an expression. But it's an interesting expression. The worms inside the lion eat lion meat. Now... Jitang, or in the colloquial version of the expression, Jitang is bringing up that sense of the lowliest life forms nevertheless feed on the highest of life forms. One is found inside the other. One is sustaining the other. It's another way of saying mutually save mutually save. We save each other. This lion, this worm, one body, in fact. You know, you take one from the other, they die. You leave them as they are. They live in this strange kind of symbiotic. We call it symbiotic. It's more intimate, in fact, than that. And there's another echo in this expression because the lion in Buddhism has always been synonymous with the Buddha himself. We talk about the lion roar of the Dharma and that Shakyamuni Buddha himself is the king of the Dharma, the golden-haired lion he's sometimes described as. So that's here too. Xitang is really drawing attention to the fact that we're feeding on the dharma. We're feeding on the teachings of this golden-haired lion. With every breath, we're feeding on the teachings of the golden-haired lion. The teachings of the golden-haired lion appear in every form and sensation of this life. And that is our nutrient. That's our food. We are in the belly of the Buddha. This is the belly of the Buddha. We're little worms in that belly of the Buddha. Or perhaps you could turn that the other way around and say, "The Buddha is in our belly." The Buddha, the Buddha, is feeding on the nutrient of our life, of our being, of everything that we see. Hear, experience, feel. Ah. There is no Buddha without this one. So this is a beautiful offering again from Jitan. He's inviting us all to not get caught in... Aspiring to something else, to some other state of being. There's a great temptation in all spiritual practice, in all religious practice, and in Buddhism itself, to strive for some kind of transcendental state. For some kind of heightened state. For some kind of state that sits just above the earth, floats somehow just above circumstances. But to strive for that is to miss the Dharma completely. Is to miss it completely. When all along, here we are, sitting on the earth, if only we can wake up to this fact open our eye to this fact. This is where the teachings of the Buddha wake up. And this, when we can realise that there is no more, no less, can open our eye to the very nature of emptiness that lies at the heart of the Buddha's teaching. Empty of more, empty of less. Empty of other, empty of self. The Buddha shakes all of those concepts and thoughts and interpretations free. He's just like my dog on the bank of that river, just like we are, just like the dog on the bank of that river. Every time we walk, every time we speak, every time we sit, we're shaking in the Dharma. That's who and what we are. So let's enjoy it. Let's live it. And the great question then becomes, how? (laughs) How do we do this? And that's what I'd like to take up in this next period of discussion. Perhaps we will just do a short walk before we rearrange the room. But I'd like to take up our great vows for all in discussion. And as we do so, I think you'll hear a great resonance with the case that we've just explored. The great vows for all are, after all, the many beings are numberless. I vow to save them. Greed, hatred and ignorance rise endlessly. I vow to abandon them. Dharma gates are countless. I vow to wake to them. The Buddha way is unsurpassed. I vow to embody them fully. So let's take up these great vows and inquire into how they are only asking us to touch the earth only asking us to wake up to each other. And we'll do that in the spirit of how they appear to you, how they feel to you, how you live them in your daily life. This is not an abstract practice. This is a fully embodied practice, as the vow makes so plain. So perhaps Zoe, let's stretch our legs and... We'll return to the cushion. Thank you for your trouble.